Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. Theopolis trains men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs will learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we are continuing our series on the 10 words with Peter Lightheart and Alistair Roberts. Here, they'll be discussing the fifth word on honoring your father and mother. We wanted to remind you to take a minute and subscribe to our YouTube channel. There's a link down there in the show notes, and we release new theological videos every week. With that, we hope that you enjoy and are edified by this conversation. And here are Peter Lightheart and Alistair Roberts discussing the fifth word. Welcome to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm Peter Lightheart. I'm here with Alistair Roberts and with Brian Motes. And today we're talking about the fifth word as we make our way through the 10 words. The fifth word in our manner of counting is honor your father and mother that your days may be prolonged in the land which the Lord your God gives you. In different systems that's numbered differently, but uh, in the way we have been numbering the commandments, this is the traditional reformed and orthodox way of numbering the commandments. This comes out as the fifth, which is in the way we had set out the scheme of the 10 words, this is part of what, uh, literally, it's part of the first table, if you want to use that terminology. Uh, point, we pointed out uh, some uh, a number of episodes ago that there's a significant shift in the style of the commandments. After this one, all of the commandments, one through five, include a reference to Yahweh's name. All of them include some kind of promise or threat or explanation of why the commandment is done. None of those things are true in the second half of the ten words. From the sixth commandment on, there are just a very pithy prohibitions. Um, and so there's this literary distinction which places uh, honor father and mother in the position of uh, it's being associated literarily with the other commandments have to do having to do with honoring God. Uh, thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not make any graven image. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Uh, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Those are those first four commandments are the ones that uh, the fifth commandment links up with. Uh, that itself is uh, it's uh, theologically intriguing that uh, the literary structure would associate the fifth word with those commandments and suggest that our relationship with parents, with father and mother, is profoundly linked up with our relationship to God. Uh, certainly our uh, relationship with our brothers, with our spouses, with our neighbors is also linked up with our relationship to God. When we murder somebody, we're violating the Lord's image. We commit adultery, we're sinning against our a spouse, a husband or wife. That's an assault on God, that's disobedience to God. So all of the commandments, of course, have to do with disobedience to God. But the, in the, the literary structure, again, puts honor your father and mother together with these commandments that more directly deal with our relationship to God, which I think is significant in helping to get a get kind of the theology that's involved in the fifth word. You could say it's a kind of transitional word between honoring God or relationship with God and relationship with neighbor, and we're dealing with uh, uh, human beings, our relationship with human beings, with human, but human beings who stand in a position of authority, who stand in kind of a divine position in relation to us. That'd be one way to see it, that it's a transitional commandment. But again, literarily, it really fits with the other, the first four commandments rather than with the last five. Um, and it elevates father and mother into a position of being, um, as it were, a divine authorities over us, divinely established authorities. 
uh, divinely established mouthpieces, uh, and our honor to them is uh, deeply connected with our honor to God. You've remarked in our previous discussion that you have at the very heart of the commandments two positive commandments, and this is the second of the two. And as you look through these commandments, you see a range of different relationships that are positively exercised, that are shown forth in sharp relief. So you have the relationship with God as we remember the Sabbath day and we keep that holy, which is a commemoration of what he has done in creating and redeeming us. It's also a time to reflect upon his works, much as he reflected upon his works in the first Sabbath. Then there's giving rest to those who work for you and those within your house, that your house should be a place of rest and relief from labor. But here I think we see this spread out even further. It's not just um, relationships with um, parents, but there's the relationship between father and mother themselves, that there is an honoring of the bond between father and mother. There's an honoring of the and protection of the bonds between the generations. And as you see this positive picture at the heart of the commandments, I think it becomes clear that this is what God intends for his people, and that all the negative commands are very much holding this possibility in place. Yeah, and so it's it, it the positive vision is of Sabbath, Israel entering into the Lord's rest, Israel enjoying that privilege, liberation from slavery, but also the privilege of enthronement with Yahweh, and then that continuing from generation to generation. That's part of the positive vision that uh, the Lord's blessing would not be just on the one generation, but that it would be continued perpetually. You know, one of the one of the things that links. Um, this fifth commandment with the other commandments regarding our relationship to God is just the, the verb that's used at the beginning. Uh, honor your father and mother, but the, the verb is uh, kavod, which is uh, the verb for glorify. Um, kabod, uh, the noun form, means glory when it talks about the when the glory of God appears above the tabernacle or the glory of God comes on Mount Sinai. That's the word that's used. And so there's a, a verbal link were to honor our father and mother with the kind of with something analogous to the respect and honor that we have for for the Lord Himself, and I think analogy may be too weak to describe what what's going on here. It's not just that we honor our parents in an analogous way, but we honor God by the way we glorify our parents. And I think that also helps us to get it um, fill out what it means to honor our parents um, when we start thinking about what is it that. In what ways do we honor and glorify God? And think of that as the paradigm for thinking about how we honor and glorify our parents. We glorify God by listening to his voice. We glorify God by praising him. Uh, we glorify God by being guided by his wisdom, by accepting his discipline. And all those things apply to the relationship that we have with parents. The way we speak about our parents, do we praise them? Do we honor them with our speech? Uh, or do we tear them down, criticize them, speak disparagingly, complain to our friends about our parents? Do we um, uh, speak about them as uh, in a way that elevates us in relation to them? The way we speak about our parents, not just the way we're uh, speaking to them, is part of that's part of what's implied by the by the verb glorify. And, and obviously, that shifts from over time. Children who are in the house have a different kind of relationship to their parents than grown children. But the requirement 
is still there. It just, the way it plays out changes over time. So um, young children should uh, glorify their parents in the way they speak about them. When they speak about them to their neighbors, they, they should be speaking well of them. Adult children should also honor their parents by the way they speak about them uh, to others. You know, little children have to obey their parents' direct commands. Adult children don't have to be parents, uh, obey parents' direct commands, but uh, we still give weight. It's part of what kabod means. Uh, to give weight to. We still give weight to our parents' advice and counsel and direction. Uh, it's, it's a different kind of relationship, but it, it's a shift within, within, the same, within the same paradigm. I mean, obviously, one of, the, one of the complications that comes up is you have a lot of bad parents. How does a child of bad parents keep this commandment? How does, I don't think that the fact that the parents are bad excuses somebody from this commandment. But then the question becomes, how do you how do you keep this commandment, which requires a certain way of talking about parents? How do you do that if your parents have just been appallingly bad, abusive, and uh, uh, inhibited your uh, walk with the Lord rather than uh, facilitate it? That's one of the, obviously one of the challenges that comes up with this commandment. And especially as we see that this commandment is one that expands into our relationship to authorities more generally, particularly as you see this being fleshed out in um, Deuteronomy, for instance, it is something that includes within it your relationship to the priest and the Levite, your relationship to the king, your relationship to the prophet, your relationship to judges and authorities. And we can think of many cases in each of those categories where there are wicked leaders, people who actually cause the detriment of the people that they're supposed to look after rather than actually their good. Right. And again, the, in none of those cases are we liberated from the requirement of the command. We're, we still have to obey the command. And I think that there's a, uh, one, of the, one part of an answer to that dilemma is to recognize that um, uh, honor or respect isn't necessarily at odds with resistance to or opposition to behavior. So you can, you can uh, act in opposition to, for example, a, a political authority uh, and try to resist injustice in political authority and yet do it with proper respect for the office, proper respect for the, for the authority that they hold, but calling them to account because they're uh, using that authority abusively. I mean, that, that's Perhaps one of the great examples being Michael and not bringing a reviling word against Satan. I think of anyone, um, he would be the one that you could bring a reviling word against, but no, there's an honoring of authority. Right. Yeah, that was, I was, the example I was thinking of was the early martyrs who defied the commands of political authorities. Um, they would not offer uh, incense or uh, sacrifice to Caesar, and yet they did it with acknowledging that Caesar was in the power that had been installed by God. And it's, it's precisely for that reason that they're to, uh, that they can be called to account because they stand in the, uh, under the authority of God and they, they themselves are, they're not the ultimate authority, but they're people who are also under authority. You can think about that analogously with parents. Uh, you have parents who are abusive, parents who have deliberately or not done everything they can to ruin the lives of their children. Uh, and you can resist that and be truthful about that uh, and still do it in a way that honors their position as parents, honors their position as father and mother. Uh, and again, the, one of the, one of the uh, 
keys to seeing that is that they, as parents, they have responsibilities to God. As fathers, uh, fathers have responsibilities to the ultimate, the father by whom all fathers are named. And they are called to reflect his character. And insofar as they don't, they need to be called to account for that. Now there's, there's um, obviously that's a, that's a very difficult practical thing to do for, especially for younger children who uh, are often just confused by parents whom they know should be loving them and caring for them doing the opposite. And they just are confused about why, why are my parents treating me like this? And they're not really in a position to call their parents to account. But uh, particularly at younger ages, I think children have huge challenge to, to know how to navigate that. But adult children who have been abused by their parents can speak forthrightly about their parents' failures and yet still do it in a way that respects the authority that they have. It's striking that while this command is expanded out into an honoring of authorities more generally that have been placed over us, that it is summarized in honoring father and mother. Um, we might think about that in the ways that there are both male and female authorities that are involved. There's also institutions that father, honoring father and mother is an honoring of marriage, that bond that mm. provides a basis for the unity of father and mother and their authority and their authority over us is part of what's being honored there. We might think of the honoring of other authorities as analogous to that, but secondary to it that the father and mother relationship is also the primary one. It's the one that we begin with. It's the first in creation. Um, the first authority structure is that which um, human authority structure in this sense is what we might think of as that which exists between um, Adam and Eve and Cain. Um, there is an initial authority structure developing there. But that bond is also one that I think suggests that it's rooted within the very human relationships, not just in ex extrinsic power structures, but in the fact of being born to parents mm -hmm. and the responsibilities that exist on both sides, of course, but the responsibilities that we have to our parents are a recognition of part of the givenness of that relationship, that we've been placed, entrusted to them, and that there is this relationship of honor corresponding to authority on the other side. Um, and then that provides, out of that, that's the paradigm for relationships with the king, relationships mm -hmm. with the priest and the Levite and the prophet and all these other characters. But ultimately, it comes back to that very basic creational order of marriage, um, husband and wife, and then as a result of that, mother and father. Yeah, the flip side of that extension of the commandment is that other authorities are imagined uh, by analogy with parental authority. And I think that's the, that is the vision that we have in you know, Reformation era catechisms that talk about the, the fifth commandment and extend it to other authorities. Uh, that they, There's a kind of paternalistic understanding of what, uh, what the king should be or what rulers should be about. Rubs Americans the wrong way to think that um, we are that our political authorities are somehow paternal authorities over us, but that's that's implied. But if you're going to if you're going to extend the the submission of a child to his parents, you're going to extend that to the submission of a citizen to the public authorities. Then the public authorities are being imagined as parent-like in some fashion, and I think that's that is the biblical picture. The kings are 
like uh, Moses is described as being like a nursing father to Israel, and David is uh, seen as, uh, I don't know if he's ever spoken of as a father, but he's seen as, as having a care for his people that is not simply a matter of management of resources or management of cogs and uh, or, you know, uh, parts of a machine, but there's a, a, uh, something that's closer to a, a paternal care for the, the people for, and for the, the souls of the people. That's a, that's a different kind of political paradigm that Americans are often comfortable with, but that does seem to be implied. If you're going to use the commandment in that way, that seems to be implied by it. And the fact that it begins with father and mother, I think, maybe suggests that those other forms of authority structures must not intrude upon that. That's the primary authority structure between human beings and where other authorities try and intrude upon that, which I think we see a lot in this day and age, mm-hmm. attempts to break down the order of the family and relate to people directly as individuals, mm-hmm. that that is undermining the most basic human authority structure that God has established. Yeah, and I think there's, particularly as you're moving into a, a free-for-all with regard to marriage law, uh, where you, uh, you no longer have uh, the assumption that a, a marriage is going to be between a mother and a father. You no longer have a situation where you can assume that the children, uh, in, uh, under normal circumstances, are going to be biological, biologically related to the two parents because the two parents may be incapable of being biological parents to their children. Which means there's this much more something much more like an adoptive or legal relationship between parents and children. And uh, marriage law and uh, the family law is kind of being reshaped in the light of that shift so that um, relationships between children and parents are becoming legal relationships. So the very thing that you're talking about is becoming kind of written into the fabric of the law, fabric of family law, where uh, almost by, uh, by definition, other authorities are intruding and uh, on, the, on, the, on the authority structure of the, of the home and are uh, shaping that authority structure and, and determining it rather than the rather than respecting that as it's having its own inherent ha- having its own inherent structure that needs to be respected. Christ's relationship to the order of the family and honoring father and mother is one that's caused a lot of debate. And when Jesus talks to the Pharisees, he singles out this p- specific commandment as one that they've nullified as a result of their tradition when they say that someone can dedicate all the honor that was due to their parents to the temple that that's a failure to keep the fifth commandment Um, jesus is often however presented as someone who's uh, against family values as someone who wants to break down the order of the family and establish something as an alternative to it now clearly we see christ speaking in ways that um, threaten the family raised up to a level that would claim things that belong to God. Mm-hmm. At other points, we see him talking about his disciples as if they're his primary family. Mm-hmm. Um, how can we connect Christ's teaching on the family and honoring father and mother with the commandment? Is Christ overturning it in any sense? Yes. Well, just a, if I could start with the first comment about the the Pharisees undermining the commandment. When I was working on my book on the Ten Words, I discovered that uh, a, a pretty strong tradition of within the within the Church Fathers of taking the Fifth Commandment as primarily addressed to adult children, 
uh, when we when we think about it, teach on it, I think our you know we're we're focusing on the little kids in the congregation when we preach on this. They say, "Kids, you better obey your parents." And uh, all the parents are really relieved that their kids are getting a good talking to at church. They're happy to have that. But partly based on the gospel account, and I think partly based on just the setting of the ten words. The, the ten words are being addressed. The Lord is addressing Israel as a whole, um, and that includes, you know, several hundred thousand adult men and their and adult women. They're part of the primary audience, and this commandment is directed to them. And so the the church fathers said that that Jesus is not taking a he's not making an application of the fifth commandment or the fifth word. He's not saying on your parents, and then there's kind of a a line of reasoning that leads to the requirement that you care for your aging parents. They said so that's that's the kind of the primary thrust of it that adult children have to respect their parents, and that takes tangible form of caring for them. A number of commentators on this have also pointed out the the link that this forges between the fifth and, and since the fourth commandment and the the Sabbath concern for the care of the care of the poor and needy. One of the most neglected sectors of at least uh, American society is the aged. And we have families that are broken down, uh, children that are not uh, on good terms with their parents. Their parents get shunted off to a nursing home and forgotten. Or you have parents who have, for their own, because of their own flaws and faults as parents, have broken every relationship. And they there's not this bond that uh, where the children are providing for their parents in old age. So part of the part of the kind of the the social system, the social security of ancient Israel, was this commandment that is that Israelite children were required to care for their aging parents, and that was part of the kind of social legislation of the in, uh, social legislation of the Torah. So. Um, and again, the, the the primary point I'm making is that that's the church fathers are saying. And I think this is I think this is a valid way to read the commandment. That it's primarily directed to those adult children, and how the adult children should honor, glorify, praise, and care for their parents. Um, so that's that's one set of issues. The the other one you um, <laughs> get my get my brain back in gear to remember. Oh Jesus, yeah, Jesus. I remember <laughs> we're talking about Jesus. We're talking about Jesus. <laughs> Yeah, I think on the Jesus teaching about the the family, I think there's several things going on there. One is the recognition that family bonds and family ties, because of the strength of those ties, and because of the emphasis that's placed upon them in Israelite society and in many traditional societies generally, can pose a primary obstacle to the call to discipleship. So uh, you'd see this today with uh, uh, Muslim converts who are ostracized by their families, disowned, sometimes uh, in danger from their families because of their, because of their uh, uh, conversion to Christ. And how many people in those kind of settings simply don't make any kind of public profession because of the pressures from family? I think those are the kinds of situations where Jesus is saying, hate your father and mother. Uh, you need, if you don't hate your father and mother, then uh, you're not worthy to be my disciple. You need, to, you need to be willing to sacrifice even these closest bonds in order to follow Jesus and be part of the family of Jesus. Uh, the other, another dimension of it, I think, is the fact that the, the family is a broken community. It's a broken institution. The first effect of the fall is uh, for Adam to turn to his wife and become her accuser. He joins Satan. He becomes a Satan to, to Eve. And so you have the breakdown of the, family, of the marriage bond 
as an immediate effect of the fall. The next generation, as soon as you have a generation, you have Cain attacking and killing his brother Abel. So the family is a the family is an is a an institution in need of redemption, in need of restoration. And not, I think for that reason, not in itself a redemptive institution. It needs to be repaired in order to become a means for uh, the grace of God to flow to, from generation to generation. And so I think it's by incorporation into the family of the church that the, the nuclear biological family is repaired and, and does become a means of grace and one of the primary means of grace. But it's, it's only in that context. So, uh, it's only as a, as a kind of subfamily within the larger family of, of believers that the, that the family functions that way. You mentioned the fact that it's probably adult children relating to their parents in this way. This is something that's often noted in thinking about the New Testament. The concept of sonship particularly is one that's connected throughout with the the son that's come of age, the adult son that's working alongside his father, representing his father, act, acting as his father's mouthpiece or agent within the world, um, looking after his adult, his aged mother, for instance, all these sorts of things that, whereas our mind leaps to the 10-year-old on the father's knee, it's a very different situation envisaged within the New Testament. Yeah, and, and I think we can connect that with the, the revelation of the ultimate father-son relationship in the New Testament. Uh, which is when we when we look at family relations or parent-child relations from through that lens, then I think we see a in some ways a complication of the of the picture. Jesus is obviously submissive to his father. He does nothing but what he sees his father doing. He imitates his father. He obeys his father. He speaks of his father. Uh, he glorifies his father in his speech. Uh, he keeps the he keeps the fifth word in relation to his heavenly father. But then you have this. Uh, uh, this kind of inversion of that relationship. The son is glorifying the father, but the father glorifies the son. The son honors the father, but the father honors and speaks. Uh, uh, you know, he, he instructs those who are at the baptism, uh, hear him at the, at the transfiguration, hear my son, this is, this is my beloved son, listen to him. So he's, he's respecting and, and uh, giving his endorsement to the, to the speech and the words of the son. So you have this mutual, this mutual relationship. There is a there is a structure to it, and there's a kind of authority that the father has that is delegated to the son. The son shares in, as Jesus himself says in John five, he has authority from his father. And yet this becomes a kind of the the hierarchy gets complicated or uh, oscillating. So there's a when the son honors the father, the father honors the son, and so on. And I think that that kind of paradigm describes or that kind of that picture that that's the reality of the triune life of the father-son relationship and that gives us an, a, a glimpse into the healthy a healthy relationship between parents and children now paul says in ephesians 6 that this is the first commandment with promise and that i think gets us into this that it's not just a commandment that tells you to respect those who have gone before you, but it's a promise that you will live long in the land and yeah. prosper within the land that God is giving to you. Um, that connection, how would we, how should we understand that connection? Is it partly that if we honor our parents, then we will be honored by our children, that that will be providing for us in our older age? That seemed, that may be part of it, but 
I would imagine it's something more than that. Yeah. Again, I appeal to Bart on on this commandment as I did with the Sabbath commandment. Um, uh, Bart describes uh, parenthood uh, as a as a mission. The mission of the parent is to uh, guide children into the way of life and wisdom. And when children honor their parents, respect the mission, then that mission is accomplished, and they actually are led in the way of life and wisdom. Uh, if they resist their parents, if they resist their parents, don't listen to what their parents tell them, they don't obey. If they don't um, submit to their parents' discipline, if they resent it, then they're resisting the way of life and wisdom, and therefore they don't, they're not going to live long and prosper in the land. So Bart describes the relationship between the fulfillment of the promise and the command. It's not an arbitrary addition, but there's in, inherent in the parent-child relationship, there's a uh, obedience to this command will lead to the fulfillment of the promise because the because parenthood has this kind of mission mission dimension to it. Or that it is as as Bart said, is a mission. And again, we uh, acknowledge the the uh, the challenge, the complication of you know, parents who don't lead their children into the way of life and wisdom, who mislead them, who lead them into folly, or lead them in in the way of death. Maybe thinking. I'm leading them in the way of life, but not actually doing that. So I think in that case, uh, that obviously that uh, complicates the picture considerably. But uh, the, the the vision that we have in the commandment is parents faithfully leading their children in uh, righteousness and wisdom and into life, and that the, the promise is the fulfillment of that. I was going to say, I wanted to add, uh, uh, one other thought about the Trinitarian, inter-Trinitarian dynamics of it. I think that the that gives us an insight into kind of the development of parent-child relationships over time. You know, little kids, if parents are faithful, parents are, if parents love their kids and raise their kids, little kids love their parents, want to be like them, want to grow up and, uh, you know, they're proud of, their, proud of their dad and mom. As I become older and my kids have entered into adulthood, nothing delights me more than talking about my kids' achievements. So this, there's this kind of flip that's happened where the kids are young, they expect them to glorify their parents. As they get older, there's more of an, a more equitable relationship and the parents want to glorify their kids. In speech, they want to speak well of their kids, they want to send their kids in, into a path of success and, uh, and uh, faithfulness. And so there's this, the, the kind of dynamics of the father-son relation in the Trinity kind of played out over time in the dynamics of parents and children. This is quite prominent in the book of Proverbs, which begins with, wisdom begins with the fear of the Lord. It also begins with heeding the counsel of your father and mother, and then leads to a situation where you are glorified, and you will also lead to um, honor for them in the way that you behave and what you have turned out to be uh, a form of behavior and a form of and prospering that your prospering within the land will be something that redounds to their praise and their honor. One of the things that we haven't really emphasized, you, you brought it up uh, in kind of in passing, is the, the, the way that the commandment, the commandment is fra- phrased to honor both parents, father and mother. It implies that there is a two-parent household. That's the, that's the paradigm. That's the norm. It implies that you have two parents who are not the same sex. That's the norm. But it also not only implies, but states that 
children are to honor both parents. This is not a father-centered commandment. It's father and mother, and in some statements in Leviticus 19, the commandment is restated with mother in the first position, honor your mother and your father. And that's in a, in a context where Sabbaths are uh, immediately connected with the, uh, the obedience to the fifth word. So that's, that's something that Proverbs also emphasize. Although it's the father speaking to the son, that, that relationship is being uh, highlighted. Uh, it's not merely a father-son relationship that's being pictured in the Proverbs. In fact, that one of the first things the father says is, listen to my instruction also, uh, heed, the, heed the Torah of your mother. She's also an authority over you. And the book ends with um, the teaching of King Lemuel by his mother. Yeah. Right. So uh, that's an important thing to, to recognize. Um, it's that uh, you were talking about this in, in relation to uh, public authorities, that it's not just the individuals, but also institutions that are being recognized. It's the marriage that's being honored by, uh, by children. And, but it's also the individual father and mother. Both of them uh, are respected and honored and spoken well of. That's, the, again, the positive picture that the Ten Words provide for a, uh, uh, the heart of Israel's life should be the celebration and joy of Sabbath keeping and this uh, harmony between generations in the home where fathers and mothers are respected by children. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.